0: This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance.
1: Welcome back, I'm
2: Kevin.
0: Welcome back, everyone. It has been a month or two. We're excited to be here back together again, talk through a case, and let's introduce everyone around the table today
1: everybody, it's Dan. It's so exciting to be back. I think you can all tell we're all very excited to be together again after <laughs> for a wonderful New Year's holiday season. Excited to be back together with some new friends, some old friends, and talking to, through some very exciting cases for you.
2: Hi everyone, it's Lauren. Really excited to be back with everyone here. This is a special episode for me. I've got some old friends here, some new friends. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Tony, do you want to start?
3: Yes, yeah, for sure. So I'm Tony. I'm a third year here. At Northwestern, yeah, very honored and excited to be here, interested in medicine with possible specialization and yeah, excited to be here. So.
2: And yeah. Tony and I went to undergrad together, so this is a very fun <laughs> full circle moment.
3: Yeah, yeah. So excited to be here.
4: So. Hey everybody, I'm Kaushik. I am also a third year med student here at Northwestern, classmates with Tony. It's my first time in the hot season to joining, <laughs> but excited to be here. I also went to the University of Michigan for undergrad, so it's a very Michigan heavy table right now. Nice. Uh, but yeah, happy to be here, interested in internal medicine, subspecialty, but who knows? Yeah.
2: Awesome. And both Tony and Kaushik are in the same clinic that I am in. So this is real fun. And I know they're going to do an outstanding job today <laughs> with this case.
4: So if we don't get the diagnosis right, it's Lauren's fault for Because <laughs> she's been teaching us for the last
2: That's fair. <laughs> well, we have our first aliquot here. We have a 65-year-old woman who's presenting to clinic for follow-up of worsening depression.
1: All right. Wonderful. So this is very, very broad, but we'd like to hear, what do you guys think? When you hear kind of an opening statement like this, what are some of your original thoughts? What questions do you have?
2: You're about to walk in the room.
3: Yeah. So I think first things I'm thinking, of. well, obviously was the psychiatric component, right? Like maybe like an MDD or something like that. But I think the other, I guess, like bucket would be possible like neurologic as well. I mean, someone who's like 65, maybe like it's more likely against, but maybe like hemochromatosis or something, probably not like Huntington's, but just something like there's like a neurologic aspect that's causing like a nuance of depression. Um, but those are the two buckets I was thinking of. I don't know if you had.
4: Yeah, totally. So 65 year old woman presents for follow-up. So I guess initially I'm thinking that because this is follow-up, this is presumably there's some kind of chronic aspect to it you know she's been seen for this before who knows what that workup has been in the past and and what the real nature of the of her symptoms were and how they're worsening now but yeah kind of like Tony was saying you know any sort of mood symptom makes me think of you know initially something psychiatric of course is a strong possibility but then it could be you know neurologically he was mentioning it could be something metabolic it could be you know some sort of degenerative process like there's it is you know delightfully broad, but I guess that's where where my thoughts go initially. I feel like follow-up really kind of jumps out at me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you all are thinking about this in a great way. It's it's very vague, right? But Tony and Kasha, you both were talking about what I think about of mem- medical mimics of depression. And so you touched on neurologic etiologies, touched on some metabolic processes, any specific metabolic processes that you would think about if you're thinking about depression?
4: When I think of things like, for I guess one thing that jumps out is like vitamin deficiencies, those don't, I don't directly draw a correlation between anyone in particular to any mood or psychiatric symptoms, except for if you think about something like niacin deficiency of the pellagra that can cause those kinds of psychiatric Neuro changes, but I could so you know, maybe a vitamin deficiency, it could be, you know, I know it's very broad. What do you think, Tony?
3: Yeah, actually, I realized when I said hemochromatosis, I think I meant Wilson's disease, I think it's more associated with like kind of cute psychiatric mm. things. I mean, I think like Huntington's, I don't think that's metabolic, but that's more genetic. But
2: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, I think other stuff I, I think I'm honestly drawing a blank on.
2: Yeah, um, I think the one thing I'd add to that is thinking about thyroid issues, specifically that's hypothyroidism. It's definitely one thing that I think about for depression, but awesome. Ready for the next aliquot? Yes, do it. All right. So this patient has been dealing with chronic back pain for about four months. She's a teacher. She had to lift up a student at work and has had lower back pain since then. She thinks her mood has been declining because of how much pain she's been in. She has anhedonia, decreased energy and appetite, and poor sleep. She's also had several episodes of epistaxis, which she attributes to dry air, And she has actually had cautery done with ENT 3. So we've got some more details here. Anything jump out at you?
3: I think thinking more like this mood, the mood symptoms are secondary to like a medical condition, right? As opposed to like primary. So it seems like the pain has just been contributing to the way she's, you know, her mood symptoms, the way she's feeling. Different for chronic back pain. I mean.
4: Totally. Um, I think that with this, kind of second aliquot like there is a precipitating factor there seems to be a clear cause of why her symptoms might be progressing you know the kind of like tony was mentioning secondary to a medical condition like chronic back pain mood symptoms can be a huge sequelae of something like chronic back pain that might not be optimally managed and can cause a lot of frustration on patients ends i guess the so looking at symptoms like anhedonia decreased energy decreased appetite poor sleep I mean, you know, she's already right there hitting some major criteria for what we would think of as a uh, possible depressive disorder or um, some kind of mood. And then the you know the several episode of episodes of epistaxis, you know, the fact that it's up there makes me think that it's there for a reason. The or <laughs>
2: noise, the singular noise.
4: But yeah, I feel like you know, right now, you know, common things being common, and you know, there's mm-hmm. certainly other buckets to kind of go down the path of and consider. But right now, these are just, this is where my thought process is kind of heading, that we have this chronic medical condition, we have these mood symptoms that could, you know, on its own, meet some diagnostic criteria for mood disorder. And yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think just, yeah, kind of expanding on that, I think with, so chronic back pain is setting lifting up students. So, I mean, that makes me think like, maybe it's like herniated disc, could be MSK in nature. I mean, I feel like usually when we hear of like chronic lower back pain, we think like malignancy, but I mean, I, I don't think there's really anything else here that would make me think that. But just, yeah, certainly on the differential. I, but honestly, yeah, I'm kind of I don't really know what to make of the nosebleeds. Like, what you know, is there like a like von bands or something? If we're kind
4: of starting to make a kind of rudimentary problem list, then we have the chronic back pain. Yeah. we have the mood symptoms, and we have this epistaxis. And you know, maybe we can connect two out of those three. But yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I think you guys yeah. have done a great job teasing out that. Her chief complaint is really secondary to other things driving it. Mm. And I like how Kaushik is thinking about diagnostic criteria based on symptoms. You're keeping that in the back of your mind and you think that's something going on, but I also got the sense that it's not the pro the primary problem.
1: Mm-mm.
0: And then I love diagnostic parsimony. So <laughs> I'm always trying to find out how things are connected to each other. How do you mm. connect chronic back pain and epistaxis? What's your difference with that? <laughs> oh, <geez.
4: laughs> Keep it in the back of your mind. Totally. <laughs> there's, there's gotta be a U world question on that somewhere <laughs> floating around.
2: Tony, you brought up how, what the injury was. So this person is a teacher. If she's lifting a student, I'm presuming that they, it is a small child. What do you make of that injury and how it relates to her symptoms? And what do you want to do about it?
3: So if I remember, I think like when you're, when you're working up lower back pain, um, so like usually you give it like a month or something like that, right? You don't do any imaging, you're very conservative, but if it's going for four months and you're, I guess you're right. Like I actually didn't, really consider that it's like probably a small child. I think that'd be kind of, or that sounds like it might be kind of extreme for the cause like a herniated disc, depending on how big the kid is. But I think in four months, I think that like you would think about imaging at that point,
0: how would you image, what are you looking for? That's a good
3: question. I mean, my, the thing that comes to mind would be X-ray, but I feel like usually X-rays don't show a lot, but I, I guess that would be the first step, right? That would be yeah, an X-ray. Yeah, I
4: don't know if you had anything else. As far as working up the back pain goes, I agree. Like we would, I'd probably also want to start conservative, but then if it persisted, which it seems to be, I agree. Like in the absence of any sort of like neurologic symptoms, you know, something like sensory changes or muscle weakness, decreased reflexes, things like that, that would maybe point me more in an MRI direction. If I'm more convinced that this is just kind of a fracture or maybe a displacement or a herniated disc, like Tony was mentioning, then then I'd also probably start with an x-ray just cause it's the easiest to do, you know, what in this kind of outpatient setting, like Tony was mentioning earlier too, that when we think about back pain, we've kind of been trained to also think malignancy, you know, just because we have this inciting factor and the timeline kind of makes sense. I feel like it's still important that we keep that in the back of our mind. Um, A review of systems, a physical exam would probably go a long way. Checking for different symptoms of possible malignancy or, you know, neurologic symptoms like we talked about.
3: Yeah, it sounds like you're looking for red
0: flag symptoms.
3: Yeah.
2: Any specific follow-up questions you'd want to ask this patient in the room?
3: Yeah, I think first I would want to know the nature of the pain. Like, is it shooting? Like, is it on both sides? Is it more centralized? I think that would be... At least the first thing I would want to ask is just what, what is the nature of the pain? Yeah, description
4: of the pain for sure. Yeah, any associated neurologic symptoms in the leg, red flag symptoms like weight loss, what debates the pain, relieves it, worse at night, better with movement, any kind of physical positioning that helps it or worsens it. I think that something like a spinal stenosis is like the shopping cart sign. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can maybe tease that out. Yeah, I think that that's, those are some initial questions that I I'd, that, that I'd be asking in the room. And then,
3: awesome. I mean, if we're thinking like Melina's, I think also like other yeah, like B symptoms, weight loss. Yeah, that sort of thing.
2: Awesome. All right. Should we get some more information?
3: Love it. Let's do
4: it.
2: All right. So, some more information on this patient. She does have a past medical history of hypothyroidism, OCD, and depression. She's been on phylloxetine for about 20 years, recently was given alprazolam as needed for worsening anxiety. She has seen ortho twice for this back pain. She did receive a lumbar MRI, which showed multi level compression fractures that appear chronic to subacute in age and diffuse heterogeneity of bone marrow and multi level degenerative disc disease. She was recommended to see PT. She got some steroids without any relief and then was sent to see a pain specialist. What do you make of that MRI finding?
4: So, that off the top makes me think. That you know, chronic to subacute in age, versus this kind of four month timeline that we're that we've been discussing, makes me think that you know that the pain you've had over the form over the past four months is difficult to directly tie to that finding. That is possibly more of a chronic, ongoing problem. The diffuse heterogeneity of bone marrow is interesting. Yeah, I. <laughs> if we yeah, agree. I was uh, <laughs> oh, <you're laughs> trying to parse through.
3: Yeah, I don't know. Would
2: you expect this based off the mechanism of her injury?
3: Oh, definitely not. Definitely not. I think, especially at her age, I don't know if this is related. Maybe I'm going down the wrong track now. But now I'm like thinking, like, is there like in like an osteoporosis picture or something? So I would wonder more about like just like a gynecologic history and whatnot. Like, well I think at antiseptasy. Like, you know, postmenopausal. Is she taking any? You know, supplements or whatever so at least that's i guess like the the, like new bucket that's just kind of yeah i'm thinking more down towards too um so
2: so what i'm hearing is you're concerned these might be more like pathologic fractures
3: i don't really know when you would expect multi-level compression fractures in someone but i think at 65 that does sound kind of young i think that what that what you just said is is totally true that like i based on
4: the mechanism of a potential injury with, you know, lifting the kid up. Like that doesn't, that doesn't check out with with these MRI findings that we're looking at. Uh. (laughs)
2: Intriguing. All right.
0: (laughs) Yeah, something, something else Mm -hmm. that that I kind of hung on to on this too, you know, chief complaint, worsening depression. We've Mm. talked about concern for something underlying psychiatric, but then Alquat two. we got more of a something medical's going on, driving mood symptoms. And this one for me kind of confirmed that that's the direction we're heading. She's had these diagnoses of depression, OCD. She's been on fluoxetine for 20 years. That's a good sign for her. That means it sounds like her depression has been controlled. They haven't had to switch agents. It seems like it's a medicine that's worked for her. But now something else has changed to to drive why she's coming in. Totally. So this, yeah. is, this is, this you're in clinic. This is all the information you get from her. You have to do something now. What are you guys
4: going to do? For sure. Yeah, like, yeah, totally. Like what you're saying, you yep. know, long-term like long-time maintenance fluoxetine but recently she's needed the alprazolam as well so hopefully there's something more acute going on I mean, it seems like you know recommended pt the methylprednisone didn't work sent to a pain specialist so we've kind of exhausted a certain extent of the conservative measures that we'd like to implement
3: i feel like first things first is like you know safety assessment for her i mean just to make sure that there's no, nothing emergencies done for her depression but yeah i kind of agree with you it's it seems like it's like a kind of a tough run right now she's exhausted i mean quite a bit
2: yeah what would you want to order
3: we have an mri i'm not
4: not immediately sure what the utility of additional imaging would be so as far as initial labs that i'd want to send off you know with the history of the hypothyroidism we talked about how that could possibly also be factoring into some mood symptoms whether or not that's what's happening here but i'd like to check a tsh not sure when her last one was or if it was normal
3: and if she's on any sort of levo but checking the TSH at least. Just going off the rail with like this osteoporosis thing, but I think like vitamin D and, and calcium, yeah. you know, just to kind of get an idea. That's mm-hmm. going. Age
0: related screening is. Yeah. Maybe is a, she wore a ADEX
4: system. <laughs> totally. 65 minutes That's just tribute. in the nick of time. <laughs> For well, sure.
0: You're in clinic. You're going to order some stuff and send her on her way. So you get one shot at getting some labs to get you some information. So it sounds like we want a TSH. We want calcium and vitamin d we say hey we really you know you qualify for a dexa scan you know, let's get that done it's going to happen in three
4: months probably
0: <laughs> so are you satisfied
4: as far as labs go i there's certainly more that we would want kind of going through the list i mean if we did you know for a cbc and a bmp i don't know that there's like if i like got a cbc looking at something like her hemoglobin seeing if she's anemic I mean, she did have like the weird
3: bloody nose and stuff so.
4: Oh, to- oh yeah, you're so, right. Maybe we just yeah. toss it on there. You're, you're totally right. Yeah, with the with the history of the nosebleeds checking at CBC or on a BMP or checking her electrolytes kidney function. Again, I don't know if there's a specific reason why I would need it in this case. Which? Like a BMP. Oh, like a BMP, yeah. i trying to be very I'm trying to be as stingy as possible, maybe.
3: I mean, I feel like if we're If we're taking, like, the bloody noses, like, seriously, I feel like maybe tossing out, like, PT, Mm -hmm. INR. Sure. Just maybe the coagulation stuff.
4: With uh, casting a wide net, we have her in clinic today. We could check for different nutritional or vitamin deficiencies while she's here.
2: So it sounds like we're kind of checking some basic labs. We have a couple that are maybe focused, getting, checking some vitamin levels, checking her thyroid function. Yeah. All right. Well, we got the results back of some of those tests. We did get a CBC. Her white count is 10. Her hemoglobin is 4.1. Her platelets are 195. Her MCV is 113. We also did get a CMP. Her BUN is 76, creatinine 5.85, and notably it was 0.8 one year ago. Calcium is 11.5, protein is 12, and albumin is 2. Her AST, ALT, ALKFOS were all normal. And the next thing that happened was we called the patient, instructed them to go to the ED.
3: Wow.
4: How do you guys synthesize the data? Okay, so let's start with the CVC. White count of 10,000, know, a little on the higher side, certainly. Hemolone of 4.1, MCV of 113. So pretty macrocytic anemia, which the two easy ones I always think of with a macrocytic is a B12 deficiency, folate deficiency. On the CMP, pretty elevated BUN. Very elevated creatinine, calcium also on the higher side. Protein of twelve, albumin of two point Protein of twelve, I also believe is pretty high. Albumin of two point oh seems like seems low. Yeah,
0: yeah nor- normal proteins in the eight range, albumin in the four.
4: Okay, okay. So, BUN creatinine ratio of less than twenty certainly.
2: So if you're outpatient. Mm-hmm. Do you expect to have these labs for an outpatient?
3: <laughs> Certainly not.
2: So, what are you worried about most?
3: Well, my first lab was like multiple myeloma. I mean, protein cap, hypercalcemia, elevated creatinine. Totally, uh, yeah. CRAB.
2: Yeah, you want to tell us a little bit about that? What is Crab.
4: I knew I shouldn't have said that.
2: Either of you. <laughs>
4: yeah. T- so, so for my, myeloma, the crab symptoms. So we think of hypercalcemia. So we have that here. We think of renal insufficiency, which we certainly have here. The A, we think of anemia, which we certainly have here, and then B for bone lesions. So that would also explain some of the bone pain she was having. You know, it seems it doesn't seem. Too often that we would go four for four on that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: absolutely.
2: Awesome. So what needs to happen then when they go to the ED with these labs? Like what's, why are they going to the ED?
3: You got to get like a home biopsy or something. Is that what they do? I just can't remember. Yeah, I'm, I'm... or they got to do the SPEP right oh, what's your work what's thing? your yeah. work I, I actually don't remember i just from an the but then that, that's that's all i remember maybe but my, i actually can't remember that part but
4: yeah i think i remember it up and i'd also do a upep. i'd also check kappa lambda light chain and i believe the definitive diagnosis does require a bone marrow biopsy so that would those all, would all just be continuing work up things to kind of really funnel in on the diagnosis
2: awesome
1: do you so I love that we're going into the details about the different symptoms and the different presentations. Do you think we can talk about what is multiple myeloma? I've heard it come up a few times. If you were to put a definition to it, what, what does that mean?
4: So my very rudimentary understanding, the way I kind of conceptualize it, is that it's a condition that results in kind of the unabated proliferation of, of proteins, of gamma globulins, which kind of gives us this elevated protein gap and also gives us some of the symptoms that we see going along with it. So if those proteins can kind of deposit throughout your body, so it can cause these, the bone pain, some bone lesions that we see, if it deposits in the kidneys, it can cause a renal insufficiency picture. So that's kind of how I think of the pathophysiology relate or resulting in some of the symptoms that we see. And
3: yeah, just to build up, I think so. Yeah, it, the buildup of protein is from the proliferation of I think plasma cells. I think I think is the, mm-hmm. the primary origin. Um,
2: nice. And mostly, yeah. yeah, I can I can give us a a little definition here too. So. Multiple myeloma is neoplasia of plasma cells in the bone marrow that are producing a monoclonal immunoglobulin. So you all got that. You pulled it all out. I want to talk a little bit about the gamma gap or the protein gap. You were mentioning that. What is a protein gap? What's your differential if there is a protein gap?
3: Yeah, I don't know if I have uh, like the right understanding behind protein gaps, but my understanding was, you know, if there's a protein gap, either your albumin is really low. So thinking like, liver pathologies, right, something inhibiting the, the ability to produce albumin, or there's like an endogenous or an exogenous, you know, you know, excess of protein. Yeah. So, I, and, you know, in multiple case, that would be from, you know, like was saying, all these extra, the, the cap and, and the light chain, you know.
2: Yeah, awesome. Exactly. If there's a difference between the total protein and the albumin, and the albumin is There's got to be something else there, right? So we typically think about that protein gap if it's four or above. It's often used as a suspicion for multiple myeloma, but also you want to think about chronic infections, so HIV and hepatitis C. It's actually not very sensitive also in multiple myeloma, so the absence of a protein gap does not mean that that patient does not have multiple myeloma.
0: Love to know... The specificity of like having all crab findings—I mm-hmm. bet it's that's a very high like point for the ratio. <laughs> yeah, <of laughs> but is it enough to anchor right now? Do you guys feel confident in like just working them up for down the myeloma pathway, or do we need to keep our rods in the water and fishing
3: for other things at play? I mean, I feel like cod I mean, like macrocytic anemia, man. I'm sure, we could toss in a B
1: twelve. Yeah,
3: you know, go down that route, and then yeah, I mean. U N Korean and I know you're you're touched on that, but you know, we've calling out this AKI work of too, of like other, you know, other things causing, you know, those patients, you know, real dysfunction. I think that it's probably not often
4: that you get the C, the R, the A, and the B. So <laughs> well, like, certainly continuing along that, that, you know, diagnostic path, but I feel like it's always important to, um, to not anchor and keep other differential possibilities open, even if you're not immediately pursuing diagnostics for those differentials, but, kind of having a plan B for, okay, if we get an SPEP, get a UPEP, get a Kappa Lambda, and they're all negative, then what do we do? Like Tony was mentioning, there are, you know, individual findings on the labs that we could kind of go down that route and see if we could work up. Personally, my M3 brain is very, very <laughs> happy that we found something unifying on this slide.
0: <laughs> I think we have a good diagnostic plan set forward, but patients, lab-wise, is sick. How are we going to start managing some of these problems?
4: I think the hemoglobin of 4.1 is a very, very scary number. So I think the first thing that I would do, you know, get back is to resuscitate. So making sure that even if it's, you know, even if we don't, it doesn't seem like we have a source of bleeding per se. But the thing that kind of jumps out of me and as initial things that we need to do is making sure we have good access and making sure we have a type and screen in case we do need to need to get back blood that we're able to do that. Are you gonna I would certainly for team 11 goal above seven. I can't remember seven or eight or something.
3: And then I've, I think for hypercalcium, I think we should definitely get an EKG. can't remember exactly how you treat hypercalcemia. I don't know if you remember.
4: I think you would give, would you give,
3: I don't know about giving phosphate. I know phos can kind of bind up some of the calcium. It, it doesn't seem to be symptomatic. So I don't think like dialysis or anything like that is indicated for her, but, but yeah, I mean, definitely getting the EKG, just seeing what that looks like.
4: Oh, sorry, jumping my head, but I don't know if it's right. For, so for a calcium of 11.5, you know, if we, we get the EKG, but she's not overtly symptomatic. What are your
0: hypercalcemia symptoms you're looking out for? Like for things
4: like muscle twitching and hyperreflexia, EKG, conduction abnormality. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, non-critical hypercalcemia. Is I treated with a Lendronate? Or am I, am I out of my mind?
3: I was gonna say we'll kill him, but I think that's potassium, right? I think yeah, we'll okay.
4: potassium.
2: What about that creatinine?
4: Oh Yeah yikes yeah absolutely
3: so okay so i guess we're thinking multiple well, myeloma so this is like i think pre-renal right because it's like they're depositing in the in the or like in the glomerulus right or, oh or, or interesting right? would that or that may, but, maybe i'm thinking would,
4: would that be intrinsic or oh, is that is intrinsic is it, i mean so for for b1 of 76 creatinine of almost six for a pre-renal AKI, we'd be thinking a BUN okay. creatinine ratio greater than twenty.
3: Oh right. So then, yeah, this thinking more intrinsic. I should. I actually can't remember.
0: Your um, thought process is right. Mm-hmm. If you think it's myeloma, oh, the immunoglobulins precipitate and kind of get stuck in the the glomeruli.
3: So then, will we give like maybe fluids to push some of that out, or you know, I've, I don't know. Yeah, but potentially that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I, I think
4: giving fluids would would also be my first thought. And she's also anemic. I mean, well, it's,
3: yeah, I don't know.
2: Yeah. So it sounds give like blood. we want to give some blood, yeah, okay. maybe also some fluids. Think about some medications also to bring her calcium down and go from there.
1: Totally. So I, I, I want to ask you guys one quick question because you guys are saying a lot of great things. So one thing that I really liked when you guys talked about your initial definition for multiple myelomas, you kind of explained how it's due to kind of a malignant proliferation of these plasma cells releasing lots of these immunoglobulins. And both of you also mentioned that these are kind of tying into a lot of the different things that we're seeing. Do you have any thoughts on what we can do to help with this massive proliferation of immunoglobulins? So both of you mentioned that, hey, we're seeing this depositing in, in, throughout the glomerulus. We're seeing this reflected in the B1 creatinine in the protein. Any thoughts on how we can help with this influx of uh, immunoglobulins this massive surge of immunoglobulins i
4: think the i think the answer to that would likely be immunosuppression right of the
3: of this kind of b cell proliferation yeah maybe get her back on steroids just for the time being until you know we can confirm it's you know multiple and then maybe think more about chemo at at that point essentially i don't know
2: yeah so there's two two things that we're thinking about here is If we think multiple myeloma is the primary process that's causing all of these other lab abnormalities and symptoms, we need to manage that. And we also are seeing this anemia, the hypercalcemia, these bone lesions, this significant renal injury. So we need to take care of those too. All right. The patient was admitted to a neighboring area hospital. The rest of the workup from clinic came back. So we got free light chains so kappa was 242, lambda was 1.68 with a ratio of 144. We also did get an SPEP, which was notable for an IgG of about 8,000, IgA was 28, IgM was 18, kappa was 361, lambda 21, and then the kappa-lambda ratio there was 17.2. We also got immunofixation So that showed monoclonal IgG kappa and free kappa light chains, and then the bone marrow biopsy is pending. And we have a question here. What clinches the multiple myeloma diagnosis? What do you need to see on that bone marrow biopsy? So maybe we can start from the beginning. Sure. What what do we see in these labs?
4: Yeah, so... Looks like there's an elevated kappa lambda light chain. The SPEP also shows that elevated ratio reflected. A pretty severe proliferation of IgG in the in the serum. I mean a fixation also with monoclonal IgG, free kappa light chains. So now kind of like we were talking about earlier, going down this diagnostic pathway, but ultimately needing a bone marrow biopsy to to really definitively prove that this is multiple myeloma.
0: Yeah, this is screaming myeloma at this point, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, what are they, what are the hematologists oncologists that think we bone marrow biopsy? I
3: think there's a situation between multiple and Rulo formation, right? I think that's blood smear. Um, oh, that's blood smear.
0: Oh, that's right.
3: I'm going to really
4: go into the vault here and maybe I'll get it wrong and we'll get it's a wonderful teaching point. It's um, so
0: it's about the pathophys.
4: Yeah. So if it's, so is it, is it part of the, the, this kind of MGUS spectrum? So there are. The uh, certain numerical cutoffs as far as how much proliferation you need to see in the bone marrow. So for multiple myeloma versus something like an MGUS, for example, it would be. I want to say? Thirty percent is the is the cutoff where where greater than thirty percent, we would then call it multiple myeloma. Your
0: thinking is spot on. Numbers just a little off. <laughs> Actually, much <most> like.
1: <laughs>
2: okay.
0: <laughs> so, odd bone marrow biopsy when you see greater than ten percent being plasma cells oh, clinches small. Oh wow! Your your reasoning is spot on.
1: Mm-hmm. You're
0: not oh. the one looking at bone marrow biopsy, so you don't need an know that percent. You're also already asking your hematologist oncologist how <laughs> oh, it's health. Just the fact that you got there says it. You know, <laughs> you knew how to get there. That's it.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. And I think worth talking for just a moment about that spectrum, right? So we have. MGUS, which is monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, which you probably see a lot of people who have MGUS. Then the next step is smoldering multiple myeloma. And then further beyond that is multiple myeloma. And so MGUS, you have less than 10% clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow. And then greater than 10% is multiple myeloma. A certain level of an M protein can also help differentiate between them. And then if you have any of these crab symptoms then that points you towards multiple myeloma as well
4: and we would only need even one out of those four crab symptoms to to qualify as multiple myeloma you
2: need to have any one or more of the crab symptoms in order to do that and then there's also these slim criteria which i learned about in preparing for this case and so they are kind of biomarkers that are associated with inevitable progression to end organ damage. So if you have greater than 60% of clonal plasma cells in the bone marrow, if you have an uninvolved or an involved to uninvolved serum-free light chain ratio of 100 or more, and if you have greater than one focal lesion in the bone or bone marrow, which is kind of getting into the weeds, but if you did have a patient who is recently diagnosed with multiple myeloma? These are kind of the things that help you think of prognosis and where they're at in terms of their progression.
0: Yeah. So, first up, guys, congrats. You saw a patient <laughs> in clinic and you worked her up and got to a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. I think your clinical reasoning along the way was spot on. You thought about pretty broad things at first and narrowed it as we went appropriately and then we jumped up and it just touched it. Are we helping this person now? And how do you help someone with myeloma? A lot of it as an interest is management of the pathophys, so the crabs, And we talked about some of that, so I think we could get into that a little more.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Strong work on on the diagnosis and going through the case. And now we can talk about, as Kevin said, you know, how do we help these folks? So thinking about some of the classic complications, those crab symptoms, hypercalcemia, we were talking about that earlier, right? What level do we treat at? Does it matter if they're symptomatic or not? So one kind of big thing when you're thinking about calcium levels, you want to also check and ionize calcium because there are a lot of reasons that your just serum calcium calcium itself is not necessarily reliable. And if you're hypercalcemic without any symptoms, your serum calcium calcium might actually be elevated because of binding to that M protein that you have in multiple myeloma. And so if you have mild hypercalcemia so less than 12 and you're asymptomatic you don't need to treat anything specifically you can just ensure adequate hydration you know making sure they're drinking enough you don't necessarily need to do IV fluids if they have a calcium level greater than 12 but less than 14 that's when you want to think about IV fluids you can give normal saline and then bisphosphonates as well if the calcium is greater than 14 That's when you're really worried, right? So you want to give immediate IV hydration to restore volume and promote calcioresis. You can give calcitonin, which will inhibit bone resorption and also promote calcioresis. You want to prevent tachyphylaxis, which is like calcium deposits. I think, is it in like blood vessels and stuff or is it just in the tissue? That's
0: calciflaxis.
2: Oh, calciflaxis.
0: The the tachyphylaxis is calcitonin only works for about 24 hours. Oh, okay. And then it has no utility. Okay. But
2: can't you get some... There's something, right? Calciflaxis.
0: You start thinking about that in like ESRD patients Yeah. it's really, really painful, like necrotic appearing skin lesions. Yeah.
2: Probably Um, more of a chronic hypercalcemia process. Cool. And then you can get bisphosphonates and those inhibit bone resorption, but it takes a couple of days for that as well. There's some other things you can think about. Loop diuretics, steroids, we talked about a little bit, and denosumab, which inhibits rank L.
0: I have a... I'm on Anc right now and have a patient with severe or had severe hypercalcemia malignancy just to give, have you guys managed a patient with hypercalcemia before?
1: No. You yes, guys
0: have any idea of how much fluids they need? That's a
3: couple of liters, <laughs> probably l- liters and leaders, liters. Leaders, <laughs> leaders, 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 <laughs> leaders. Yeah,
0: this guy is calcium, I think peaked at 14.3. He, for three days, was on normal saline at 250 cc's an hour. So that's six liters a day. Jeez. <laughs> oh, Oh. shit. <laughs> and it's, he got a bisphosphonate. The bisphosphonate t- don't peak till like day three, day four. Wow. And wow. I don't know, today is day four or five for him, and his calcium's just starting to come down.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of fluids. <laughs> All right. Should we talk about how we can help the renal complications here. So Tony, you were spot on. You talked about, you know, the deposition that happens with myeloma. So you get a light chain cast nephropathy, also often called myeloma kidney with Bence jones proteinuria. And important to note that, you know, this is a common complication of multiple myeloma, but you can have a lot of other kidney diseases and issues with multiple myeloma too, but today we'll talk about the light chain cast nephropathy. So again, you want to give IV and PO fluids. The goal urine output would be three liters a day, and this is really to minimize light chain precipitation. You can also give some bicarbonate, and acidic urine can help further precipitate those light chains. You can also do plasmapheresis. There's some conflicting evidence for this as well, but you can do this 5 to 7 times over about 7 to 10 days and then replace fluid with colloid so albumin and the goal would be to reduce the serum free light chains by about 50 to 60% but some studies really do show that you can have substantial renal benefit and kind of avoiding dialysis as well with this approach so all right and we also talked about anemia so interestingly you know most patients with multiple myeloma have normocytic anemia 73% of patients at the time of diagnosis but you can also see macrocytic anemia 10 to 15% will have macrocytosis and often associated with a B12 deficiency so you all were right on track you were know, wanting to check some of the the B12 and folate as well and you know some of the etiologies of this anemia in multiple myeloma is from bone marrow replacement a relative erythropoietin deficiency and also dilutional from the large protein And of course, transfusions, as you appropriately wanted to give our patient. And then for this bone pain, this can be really tricky. So you often see these osteolytic bone lesions and these pathologic fractures, like our patient who had all these compression fractures picking up a child. It's usually in the central skeleton, and you can use osteoclast inhibitors such as bisphosphonates or denosumab to prevent them, and then also supplement with calcium and vitamin D. And you want to really look out for serious complications of this bone pain and this pathophysiologic process so you can get cord compression depending on how you're fracturing. And so, of course, you want to look out for severe back pain, weakness, lower extremity paresthesias, lateral bowel dysfunction. I think one of the ways that I, I learned to actually ask about that in practice is that do you When you're wiping after you go to the bathroom, do you feel it or does it feel different is often a good way to actually assess that because sometimes it's hard to say. And then, of course, you can do radiation therapy and some steroids as well to help with those bone symptoms. And then we talked about treating the multiple myeloma itself. So often you do an induction chemotherapy for about three to six months. You would get additional studies, so FISH studies, to risk stratify. There's also some other prognostic indicators, things you can get. So beta-2, microglobulin, albumin, and LDH are all also helpful in this case. And then there's a couple different, what's the word? Induction
0: regimens. Yeah,
2: induction regimens that you can use. I don't know that I can pronounce all of these correctly. <laughs> there's VRD, azimib, lenalidomide, and then dexamethasone or DRD. So theratumumab, lenalidomide, and then dexamethasone. So either of those two are very popular. Then the big thing that you hope that your patient is a candidate for is autologous hematopoietic cell transplantation. And there are a couple approaches for this as well. You can do it early or you can delay this after induction chemotherapy until they have their first relapse of of symptoms and progression. And then, of course, with chemotherapy and a Hematopoietic stem cell or cell transplantation. You also want to worry about increased risk of infection, risk of VTE. These patients often have a lot of neuropathy as well and hyperviscosity. So all things to think about in managing those symptoms. Any final thoughts on the case or some of these these pearls?
3: What like what is the association between the I guess the osteolytic cells and then like these like kappa proteins i think that's like the gap i don't know like what is like the relationship between those two
1: that's a really good question i had a similar question so i kind of dug into that a little bit so it turns out that the significant burst of, of antibodies like you mentioned that are released from these cells directly act on the rank ligand that's present on the osteoplast that is what triggers this massive chain effect and you have these big lytic lesions classically you see the punched out holes in like the scholar In this case, like you both mentioned, we saw in this patient kind of chronic and some acute lesions in the spine, suggesting multiple fractures because of this constant remodeling that's happening because the osteoclasts are just working double, triple overtime because of the increased production in univoculants. Which is why, sorry, just to carry on over that, which is why part of the treatment is to use an agent like denosinab, which blocks activity at the rank ligand Mm -hmm. to help with these, with the progression of symptoms. Uh
2: Thanks, Dan. And this is a very popular topic for step two for any of our listeners who are getting ready for this. So some other pearls to think about. If you get a skull x-ray, you're probably being shown that to look for lytic lesions. So look (laughs) for lytic lesion. And then if you have a patient who's got a whole bunch of other stuff going on and that calcium is 14, give fluids. Those are those are some step two pearls. (laughs) Lots and lots and
4: lots of fluids.
2: Right.
0: (laughs) thanks for coming on guys you guys did a great feel proud and excited for you know m3 year to wrap up m4 year and then you'll be taking care of patients on your own in no time you guys have any reflections on the
4: case
3: i mean this was fun and yeah thank thank you to all of you for for having us this was honestly it was a blast so
4: yeah i think being able to kind of work through this with tony kind of bounce ideas off each other and off you guys um was really, really wonderful. It was a lot of fun. Credit where credit's due, Lauren. A lot more fun than (laughs) I
2: know. I told you we'd have fun, huh?
4: (laughs) Yeah, it was really awesome. And honestly, I feel like this was really, really high yield. I actually, last month on a medicine rotation, saw a patient who was having these kind of low-grade persistent fevers of unknown origin, And so this was one of the paths that we started to go down was a possible MGUS versus multiple myeloma. And being able to see it in a patient and then kind of talk through a case like this just really helps it stick and drive home. Yeah,
3: And I don't know if it was like the month that I was on medicine ever at B-Firm, but there was a ton of patients with multiple myeloma. Like I was surprised. Like it it seemed like a third or even a fourth patient had that in their history. So honestly, this was super, it was like nice to be able to see like kind of, you know, taking a step back and looking at how you just generally work yeah. out and treat it so yeah,
2: yeah. Awesome. well it's so nice to have you both on on the podcast and you know couch i remember when you were an m1 i was an m2 in clinic and uh so look how far we've come it's really exciting yeah, and tony you too this is awesome <laughs> you
1: guys are phenomenal it was great having you on excellent work yeah thank you guys thank for, you for having us on seriously it was yeah. really great
0: fun times all right guys thanks for listening we'll see you next time
1: see you soon
0: bye thanks again for listening person time and place see you next time